I would like to dedicate tonight's shiu in honor of Daskara, Daskara, the passing of my brother-in-law's father. And my brother-in-law, Rabbi Mordechai Rabinowitz, those of you who are in my Giyur program, you've studied from his Hebrew packets before, the Hebrew reading packets. Uh, he is married to my wife's sister. Uh, my brother, Rabbi Mordechai Rabinowitz, his father passed away uh, this week. His levaya was on Sunday. If I could tell you of a story that happened with me and him, I didn't know him very well. He lives in New York and he's my brother-in-law's father. So it's not someone that I would spend a lot of time with unless I lived there. Uh, the first Shabbat of my Sheva Barachot, I was with my whole family. It was a Sheva Barachot, a Shabbat, a Friday night. I was sitting with my father-in-law and... I'm going to preserve the dignity of all the families. Let's just say that my father-in-law was still getting over uh, the wedding that had just happened on Thursday night. And the conversation was pretty superficial, you know, in terms of hello, hello, shalom, shalom. They brought me beautiful koskidush, but it wasn't full of uh, warmth. There was still a lot of apprehension there, speaking very nicely, I understand. And that went through Shabbat meal until at a certain point, um, my brother-in-law's father came to the meal and he sat next to me and my father-in-law and he started talking to us and at a certain point in time he asked me a question the Khatan, he doesn't care, family politics he asked me a question I said, you know, there's a very interesting piece from Rabbi Tzadok HaKohen of Lublin in his book, Tzidkat Tzadik Rabbi Tzadok HaKohen of Lublin was a staunch opponent of Hasidut who became a Hasidic Rebbe he started writing his own Hasidic works 10 months after he became a Hasid so in 10 months, he was able to comprehend the Torah of his rabbi, and I spent some time in Yerushalayim studying his works, and I answered him, the answer based off of a Tzidkat Tzadik. My father-in-law was listening from the side, he said, wait a second, you know the Tzidkat Tzadik? I said, of course, I learned in Yeshiva, and he tells me, I had no idea that you learned Hasidut. He said, now that you know Hasidut, you made me so happy. And he got up and he gave a speech, and he said, en simcha, ke simcha tatarat There's no joy, like the joy when you, when you answer all the... All the problem, all the worries that you had, when they go away. When those worries go away, now you can finally be happy. And it was a very wise thing. My father is a very wise man. He's a special person. And I think at that moment he realized, hey, you know, maybe this is not, it's not exactly the way he would have envisioned everything. But that even here, that there's room to be discussing Hasidut and Kabbalah, though that's not where I spend my life learning and spending time. It's something that I've dabbled in and seen things there. And so I owe it, Hagat Atov, to my, my brother-in-law's father, Allah Shalom, who passed away, that he's really the one who broke that ice. If it wasn't for him, I don't know how many years it would have taken for that ice to be broken between my father-in-law and myself. And I'm grateful to him for what he did to us. I never had a chance to thank him in his lifetime. So at the very least, what I can do is say that if you learn Torah this week, if you could please learn Torah, that would be a very, a very big mitzvah. Shalom Lechem, Erev Tov. We are on page 450. Eight, four fifty-six of the encyclopedia. And we're discussing the life of Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hanina. Rabbi Yehoshua is the rabbi who argued with Rabbi Eliezer ben Hokonos. If you remember that whole story, throwing him out of Sanhedrin, Rabbi Eliezer dying alone, all of that happened with his Bar Plukta, the one who stood opposite him, and that is Rabbi Yehoshua, who we've been discussing already, that we discussed him once, and this will be our second, Bezalat Hashem, and final shiur about the life of Rabbi Yehoshua. 
And I told you there are elements of the life of Rabbi Yoshua, which we won't fully understand until we learn next week about the life of Rabban Gamliel. Rabban Gamliel, we won't understand his life unless we first analyze the lives of Rabbi Eliezer ben Hukunus and Rabbi Yoshua ben So it's a little bit of a few moving pieces that we have to make sure we all remember what's going on. But if you recall, the last part that we discussed, last time we studied together, was that Rabban Gamliel had come to visit Rabbi Yoshua in his home. And he noticed that Rabbi Yoshua was very poor. And Rabbi Yoshua tells him, if you see on page 456 457 He tells him on the top page 457 Oy ledor shata parnaso Woe to the generation Rabban Gamliel that you are its leader Because you don't know how bad the Talmidei Chachamim have it you don't even know how Tamidech Chamim get their parnasa. Meaning, he's telling Rabban Gamliel, you came to visit me in my home, you're so astonished that I'm poor. Clearly, you know nothing about the life of the Chachamim that you presumably lead. Woe to the generation that you are its leader. This comment towards Rabban Gamliel is quite hot. It's a very sharp comment, and it has history. There is tension between Rabbi Yoshua and Rabban Gamliel, you can imagine respectively the head of Jewish political leadership and the head of Jewish religious leadership. And these two branches of Am Yisrael at times were at odds with each other. And we're going to see in the life of Rabban Gamliel certain moments of terrible disputes that happened between these two Chachamim, Rabbi Yoshua and Rabban Gamliel. And we're even going to touch on it a little bit today, uh, somewhere in the middle of the Shi'ul. Right now, we're on page 457. I want you to open up, please, Safaria, and go to. So I'll tell you step by step. You go to Safaria. If you don't have the app, it might be easier if you just use the app instead of the website. Click on Mishnah. After you click Mishnah, you'll see the first option there, Berachot. Berachot. Let's scroll down. To pay to subsection to subsection three. The Mishnah has a dispute regarding the Amidah prayer, also known by the Ashkenazim most formally as Shomer. So, if you don't mind, just taking the kippah off the book, put it on the black thing. Perfect. Thank you. Rabban Gamliel says, Every day, a person recites Shemona Why did I tell you then that Ashkenazim call it Shemona Here the Mishnah is calling it that. What does Shemona mean? 18 blessings of the Amidah. How many blessings do we have in the Amidah today? 19. We added Birkat Aminim. Because of that, I prefer to call it Amidah. 
It's the prayer you say when you're standing. Rabbi Yoshua Amir. Chapter 4, paragraph 3. Yeah? Did I not say that? I'm sorry. Chapter 4, paragraph 3. Thank you, Michina. Oh, very good. So, <laughs> so at least, uh, so if you're in Masechet Berachot, Mishnah Berachot, chapter 4, Mishnah 3. Rabbi Yoshua, Rabbi Yoshua, that's our rabbi. He argues and he says, Me'en Shemun that a person should recite Me'en. What does Me'en mean? Is that? Me'en, okay. We use it somewhere else. We say a bracha that we recite. Bekat Amazon, we have a blessing. Me'en Shalosh. What is Me'en Shalosh? Me'en Shalosh is like, it's almost like, it's like a bit of Me'en. Me'en Olamaba. A little bit of a it's it's a similar, meaning it's an abridged version of the Amidah. He says you should recite that blessing that is man Shemona Yisrael. Rabbi Akiva Amir, Rabbi Akiva says, "Im shegura tefilato befi v'itpalel Shemona Yisrael v'im lav man Shemona Yisrael." Rabbi Akiva holds the middle position between Rabban Gamliel and Rabbi Yoshua. Again, you're going to find this a lot. Rabban Gamliel says one thing, Rabbi Yoshua says another thing. Rabbi Akiva is trying to hold all the pieces together here. Rabbi Akiva is telling you. If you know the tefillah well, then say the long one. And if you don't, then you recite the short one. Yeah, or even from memory. There are people who have a sido in front of them, but they don't know how to read very well. So? Yeah, and they can fall into that category too. Now, tefillah, today we call it tefillah, 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 you don't find it very often in Sidurim. Our rabbi said some pretty miserable things about people who say that tefillah for no good reason. I do have a copy of it in the Israeli army Sidur. So in the Sidur given to Chayalim, they give them an abridged Amidah to say. Now, soldiers many times are exempt in the middle of war. Rockets are flying overhead. They don't have to pray at all. But in a situation where they can pray, but they don't have a lot of time to pray, then it may be warranted for them to say this tefillah me'en shemun So you see here that Rabbi Yoshua between the two opinions is the more lenient of the two. Rabban Gamliel wants you to say a full-blown Amidah. And Rabbi Yoshua tells you, say, Me'en Shalosh. As much as we are familiar with Rabbi Yoshua Mechayina as the strict personality that stood up against Rabbi Eliezer ben Hokunus, we have to now make a mental shift in our mind. That mental shift has to be between the Chachamim of his generation, Rabbi Yehoshua was the most moderate of those Chachamim in the way in which he viewed Halakha, in the way in which he hated Chumrot. Rabbi Yoshua ben Hanina is really the one who's pushing for a balanced, moderate Judaism, and we're going to discuss those examples today. If you look in the next Mishnah, Rabbi Eliezer Omer, Rabbi Eliezer says, and we study this at the end of the life of Rabbi Eliezer, Anyone whose prayer is fixed, you pray Shachrit, you pray Mincha, you pray Arvit, you pray the same thing every single time, your tefillah doesn't count as real tefillah. And tefillah You pray, but it's not praying, you're just reading. Tefillah is tachanunim, supplicating, requesting things from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. You don't do that by heart, you do that from your heart. Rabbi Yoshua, Rabbi Yoshua says, Hamehalech bimkom sakana mitpadeh tefillah ketzara. Somebody who's walking in a dangerous place says a tefillah ketzara. By the way, 
Later, our rabbis discuss tefillat aderech possibly coming from here, but this is not the understanding of the Mishnah. Rather, Omer, what do you say? Hosha Hashem et amecha et sherit Israel, save Hashem, your nation, the people of Israel. Bechol parashat haibur yutzochehem lefanecha, baruch ata Adonai shomea tefillah. At every transition, the Gemara discusses what these, this Ibu is. May their needs be before you. Blessed are you, Hashem, who listens to prayer. Now, there's a little bit of a different tefillah from this recorded. Some kids are taught it in school. But the idea is there is an abridged tefillah. That if you can't pray for the reason you're in a dangerous situation, you say this sentence according to Rabbi Yoshua, and it counts. You already fulfilled your obligation of tefillah. So Rabban Gamliel, it's not only in regular Amidah they're kind of fighting here. Also here, Rabbi Yoshua is proposing an abridged version. This is a summary of the whole tefillah. Is a Kadosh Bahu, protect your people of Israel, listen to their prayers. Back inside of our encyclopedia, don't close your, your uh, Savaria so quick. You know what, let's do this already. Let's jump to Berachot, not Mishnah. Now you want to go back to the Safaria main page. Click Talmud. Click Berachot. Go to page 27b. You're on 27b? Scroll down. Excuse yeah. me, you said Safaria? Talmud. And Talmud. Berachot. 27b. Okay, sorry. Okay. And subsection 13. The Gemara says, Tefilat en la keva. We learned in the Mishnah that the evening prayer has no, it's not fixed. Mai en la keva. What does it mean it's not fixed? If it means that you could say the Amidah the whole night, which Amidah are we talking about? Arvit, right? If it means you could pray Arvit the whole night, I should have said that you can say Arvit the whole night. Rather, what does it mean? And I mean, that must not be the reason for why it says the Tefillah is not fixed. What does it mean? Section 14. It's like the opinion who says, Tefillah Arvit Reshut. That Arvit is a Reshut. What is a Reshut? It's not obligatory. It's, a, it's an optional tefillah. Shacharit, you're obligatory. Mincha, obligatory. Arvit, according to this opinion, it's optional. Damar Rav Yehuda, Amar Shemuel. Rav Yehuda says the name of Shemuel. Tefillat Arvit, Rabban Gamliel Omer Chova. By Arvit, Rabban Gamliel says it's an obligation. Rabbi Yehoshua Omer Reshut. And Rabbi Yehoshua says no. Arvit is not an obligation. Arvit is an optional prayer. Amar Abaye. Abaye says, The law is like the one who said that it's an obligation, meaning like Rabban Gamliel. Rava says, Halakha is like the one who says it's optional. Tanu Rabbanan, our rabbis taught. There was a student who once came before Rabbi Yoshua. 
אמר לו, the student tells רבי יהושע, תפילת ערבית, רשות או חובה? Tell me Rabbi, the evening prayer, is it optional or is it mandatory? אמר לה, what should רבי יהושע tell him? רשות, that's his opinion, it's optional. בא לפני רבן גמליאל, the student came to רבן גמליאל, you always have students with this problem, they go and ask many rabbis the same question, and then start to make problems between them. There are people who call me for halakhic questions. And uh, if they're from our kila or from our larger kila, fine, I'll answer them. Somebody I know is calling me from another neighborhood, I said, call your rabbi. No, no, but I want to hear your answer. I said, I'm going to tell you what your rabbi is going to say. Your rabbi is going to tell you X, Y, and Z. Why? Because it's not, not my business. I don't, I don't work for you. I didn't answer your questions. I don't know you. You don't learn with me. There's no need for me to answer your question. Rabban Gamliel, Amar lo, Tiflat Arvit, Rishut HaChobah, says, Rabbi, is Tiflat Arvit optional or is Tiflat Arvit mandatory? Amar lo, what does Rabban Gamliel tell him? Chobah, why? That's his opinion. Rabban Gamliel, he holds consistently that Arvit is a Chobah. Amar lo, he tells him, V'halo Rabbi Yoshua, Amar li Rishut. But Rabbi Yoshua just told me that it's optional. Why are you going from one rabbi to the next rabbi and then telling what the other rabbi told you to contradict the rabbi here? If we were studying this completely in Agadah, we would spend more time on this personality. Wait until those who come with the shields, wait until they come to the Ben Midrash. Who are those? Wait until the Chachamim gather in the Ben Midrash. Why are they called Balet Terisin? Interesting question. You could say very superficially that uh, those who go to war for Torah, they carry the armor of soldiers. Subsection 17. When the Talmud entered the Ben So what do they do in the Ben Midrash? They have a Q&A. Because that's the way Chachamim learned Torah. People would get up and they would ask in front of the Ben Midrash questions and the Chachamim would answer them. So, this person got up. He said, Rabbi, I have a question. No people. Which people? No, I'm saying it's not. It's, oh, I don't hear about this in discussing better midrashim. I hear about pilpul. Pilpul is a method of study. Um, not necessarily a style of teaching. It's a method of study in which you take two things and compare them and contrast them. And, and it, here, this is a question. It's a... The way in which Talmudic Hamim are answering questions is people would come to the Ben Midrash, the students would ask questions, and that's what would lead the Ben Midrash in conversation. Like we did here uh, a few weeks ago, we had a situation like that. At a Q&A, it wasn't the topic of the show. Oh, yeah, that was the Ben Midrash. That's how Ben Midrash works. So here are the same thing. This student gets up, and he asks his question again. Tefilat Arvit, Rishut Honorable Rabbis, is Arvit optional or mandatory? Third time's a charm. אמר לו רבן גמליאל, חובה. רבן גמליאל answers, why does he answer? He's the Nasi, he's the prince, he answers. He says, it's an obligation. אמר להם רבן גמליאל לחכמים. רבן גמליאל tells the חכמים, כלום יש אדם שחולק בדבר זה? Is there anybody here who argues with me on this matter? אמר לי רבי יהושע, לאו. רבי יהושע says, no, no, nobody argues with you. אמר לו, רבן גמליאל tells him, והלא משמך אמרו לי רשות. In your name they said that you told people that ערבית is optional. What do you mean you don't argue with me? It's you that said that it's רשות. Section 18, אמר לו, רבן גמליאל tells him, יהושע, 
He doesn't even call him rabbi. Yehoshua, amod al raglecha. Stand up on your feet. V'yaidu b'cha. And let them testify that that's what you said. Amad Rabbi Yehoshua al ragla v'amar. Rabbi Yehoshua stood up on his feet and he said, Ilmale ani chai. V'hu met. If I was alive and he was dead, yechol achai l'achish et amet. I could say that he was lying. And then I'm living, he's dead, there's no one to answer for him. So I could just tell you that what you heard is wrong. But because he's alive and I'm alive, how can a living person say that another living person is wrong? Meaning, I'm caught. You caught me. That's exactly what I said. Rabban Gamliel sat down and continued teaching. All the while, Rabbi Yoshua is still standing on his feet. Why is he standing on his feet? He told to stand. He didn't tell him to sit. Everyone started murmuring among themselves. That's very disrespectful. What Rabbi Gamliel is doing to Rabbi Yoshua? He's punishing him in front of the whole community. And they told Chutzpit. Chutzpit is his name. Very interesting name, by the way. They tell Chutzpit the Meturgeman. Meturgeman is a translator. Not necessarily a translator, but what happened, almost like a loudspeaker. He sits here, he speaks. It's a huge auditorium. So he speaks, and there's somebody who announces for the rest of, or he's explaining to the rest of the community, the Meturgeman is an interesting job. It's the person who, uh, who he's announcing whatever the rabbi said at the rabbi's table. They tell him, stop. And he stops. Amre, the Gemara says, How long will Rabban Gamliel continue oppressing, hurting Rabbi Yoshua? So this is already the next sugya, which is Rabban Gamliel's life. There are a number of places in which Rabban Gamliel publicly humiliates Rabbi Yoshua. And this seems to be the straw that breaks the camel's back. The nation finally says, listen, once is once, twice is twice, but now it's already a big deal. It's consistently hurting Rabbi Yoshua. We have to do something about it. What the nation does and what happens to Rabban Gamliel is going to be the topic of next week's shiur. For right now, we're pausing over here. Okay? Uh, but here you find a situation where Rabbi Yoshua, out of respect to Rabban Gamliel, is being quiet about his opinion, but ultimately his opinion is that Arvit is op- optional and not mandatory. Again, you see a person who's towing a line of halakha that is not excessively stringent. This is his style of teaching. Let's go back to the encyclopedia. Don't close Safari, we're going to get back to it very soon. If you look at the bottom, yeah. Af belimud ha Torah, 457. Even when he learned Torah, lo hayaminat he was not from the people that said you have to learn so much. Rabbi Yoshua prescribed how much does the Rambam say you have to learn every day? The Rambam. Let's open up Lazat Amutra. Halakha, Mishnah Torah, Torah study. You have to, Lishalesh Adam Limudo, meaning you have to learn Torah. 
I'm in a, let me look in a real round like this. Stuff I had done. Doesn't do it for me. Look in the laws of Talmud Torah. And I'll do it with you. So look at Talmud Torah. This is the Rambam. You click Mishneh Torah. Then you go to Torah study. Click on chapter 1. So click Halakha. Click Mishneh Torah. Click Laws of Torah Study. Chapter 1, Halakha 11. This is what my mother mentioned. Chayav Adam Nishalesh Zaman A person has to split up the time of their learning into three parts. A third in the written Torah. Hmm? Uh, 1, 11. A third in the written Torah a third in the oral Torah, and a third in what's called Gemara, meaning to actually understand how the Halakha works. Could be that nowadays these categories are different. The Rambam in section 12 then gives you an example. So Ketad, for instance, Let's say a person was a working person. They were a craftsman. Not a Chacham who sits all day and learns. And he works He works for three hours a day. And in the Torah, he spends nine hours a day. Otan Hatesha, those nine hours a day that a regular person has to learn. Kore Bishadosh, he studies Tanakh for a third of that, three hours. Mehen Batorash Bichtav, Ushalosh Batorash Balpen, a third, three hours studying the oral law. Uvishalosh Acharot, Midbonen Bidato, Davin Davar Midavar. And he spends the third part of his learning in the learning of extrapolating things from one thing to another, which is the study of halakha, proper halakha. Not like do this, do that. Rather, to properly learn halakha. So according to the Rambam, how much Torah does a working person study? Nine hours a day, compared to three hours of working. I'm just reading to you what the Rambam says. They were all lawyers, yes. So, here, Rabbi Yoshua is suggesting a different regimen of Torah study. Look inside your encyclopedia, 457, in the middle of the page. A person studies two halachot in the morning, and two halachot in the evening. And you work in your trade the whole day. And they will consider it in heaven that you study Torah the whole day. So study Torah in the morning. Study Torah in the evening. 
You have to understand when he says to study two halachot and two halachot. It doesn't mean read a sentence, read a sentence, go work. Study two halachot means to actually study something well. Two, two little somethings. Yes? And then go to work, whole day. Then in the evening, before you go to sleep, again to study Torah the same way you did in the morning. This way you fulfill the mitzvah, the hagita bo, yuman valayla. You have to learn Torah day and night. So in the daytime and the nighttime. Correct? And the Rambam Adoui tells you that the Torah, most of the Torah that you gain in your life, you study it at night. The Torah that you study at night is superior to the Torah you study in the day. The Rambam, look at the laws of Talmud Torah, we're in, where we're in right now. And so here you find Rabbi Yoshua is suggesting perhaps a more reasonable way for a person who has a trade to learn Torah in the morning, in the evening. What is the idea behind this? The idea behind this is that a person is constantly involved in Limut Torah. In the morning they're involved in Limut Torah. In the evening they're involved in Limut Torah. And that way, even though I may not actively be sitting and learning Torah, I'm learning Torah. The Peleoetz, he says that it used to be, in the olden days, people uh, used to get more Parnassah than they get today. So the reason is because of the Yetzirah. So what happened? So you go to an old uh, Sephardic village and you find a person who has a store. What do they sell in the store? Candles. Great, they sell candles. What happens? They're sitting in the store waiting for a customer to come. While they're waiting for a customer, what do they do? Very good. They study Chok Nisrael. Chok Nisrael. They do a little bit of Tanakh, a little Mishnah, a little bit of Tamur, some Zohar, some Rambam, some Musaf. That's what they do. And in between customers, they would keep looking at the book. So what does uh, Yitzhakah do? Ah, he's sitting to learn Torah? Let me send someone to interrupt him. Oh, he's learning Torah again? Let me send someone to interrupt him. He's learning Torah again? Let me send someone to interrupt him. He said, it used to be that Yitzhakah was involved in sending you a lot of customers. He said, what happens now? So people sit over there and they read the newspaper, they speak Lashon Hara. He didn't know about Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or YouTube or whatever else. He didn't know what else people do with their time. He says, so now the Yitzhakah didn't have to send you any customers because you're already doing the Yitzhakah's job for him. So why should he interrupt your watching of Netflix if anyways you're wasting your time? He's okay with that. He doesn't have to send you customers. So if people would start learning more Torah at work, they would realize their work would get much busier. There's a book. You know what? Let me see if I can find this for you on Safari. I did not intend to teach this to you today, but... So I don't, I don't know how to find this in the Safari app, but there's a famous Ashkenazi Chacham. His name was Rabbi Chaim. Rabbi Avraham Danzig was his name. Rabbi Avraham Danzig. Danzinger in English. He was from the city of Danzig. He was the rabbi there. He wrote a book in Halacham called the Chaye Adam. You may have seen it before. Chuchmat Adam. Also he wrote. This was the main work of Halacha in Ashkenaz before the Mishnah Be'uah and the Ruch HaShulchan, before that generation of texts. This was the main text of Halacha that Ashkenazi Jews used to use in those countries. Rabbi Avraham Danzig didn't serve in any official capacity as a rabbi. He was the Mikhacham, but he made his parnasah by traveling and selling things and buying things, and he was a merchant. In the introduction to his book in Halakha, Chaya Adam, he says, yadati, I know that people are going to whisper about me. They're going to say, This man, he is just a regular merchant, he's a businessman. When did he have time to study Torah? Meaning he can pretend to be some poset, some rabbi. Yeah, we know that he's a working guy. He's on a tamikha. And he writes, you should know, that when he travels, he always takes with him a Mishnah, Gemara, Halakha, Tanakh. Always he's taking books with him. 
And even the times that he's away from his books, it says that if you leave me one day, if you leave me one day, I will leave you for two days. Right? That there's a certain curse with the Torah. You stop studying, it's even harder to get back to it. It's not like anything else. You just put a bookmark and tomorrow you continue. It doesn't work like that. You leave the Torah for one day, two days you're going to leave the Torah also. It keeps getting further and further away from you. Says the Adam, that's only true about a person who leaves the Torah. But somebody who takes the Torah with him, and just because of work or because of life or because of stress or finances or children or whatever it is, they're not able to study Torah as much as they would like. But if they had a moment, they will study Torah. The Torah, not only does she not leave them, but she stays there waiting for them. Waiting for them to come back. Isn't that how I became a Tamikha? I mean, I was a person who everywhere that I went, even if I knew that I'm only going to have five minutes this weekend to study something, I still took a book with me. You should tell about yourself. When you go places, do you take Svarim with you? You go away for Shabbat. How many books do you take with you? And you always wonder that day you're packing up your trip, I didn't even read any of these books. It's not the point. The point is that you took them with you. The point is that you said, if I will have the time and the minuchat nefesh and the headspace to study, I will study. That type of person never really leaves the Torah. The Torah is with them in everything that they do. It could be that they're not actively learning as much as they would like, but just the fact that they would like to actively learn Torah more is enough of a reason that the Torah that they do study stays with them. This should be a chizuk for anybody who struggles with, I wish I could learn more, but I don't learn as much as I wish. It depends why you're not learning as much as you wish. It's because of laziness, or because you don't want to learn Torah, or because of whatever else. That's your problem. But if it's because you really try, and in between your, your things that you do in life, you grab a shiu here, you grab a Torah there, you grab a... And those things tell about you, that you are a person who when you have free time, what do you choose to do? You choose to learn Torah. What do you choose to do? You choose to be sitting here in the Beda Knesset at night when other people are at home. You choose to be here. That choice that you make means that the Torah's relationship with you is you've never abandoned me, so why would I leave you? And the Torah stays with you. When we, God forbid, leave this and we stop doing this, then already we have to be concerned with ourselves that the Torah will also treat us the same way that we treat her. I saw a beautiful quote. It said that if you look at a person's library, they said that buying books and reading books are two different hobbies. Not all the books you buy do you actually end up reading. But that if you look at a person's library, you can tell who they really wish they could be. And I think there's something very powerful about that. You look at a person's home. And you see the books of Torah, you see books of whatever it is they're involved in. Even if the person never finished all of those books, the very fact that they choose to surround themselves with chokhmah, with wisdom, this type of thing allows for a person to say, this is, if I had all the time in the world, this is where I would like to be. These are the people I would like to be hanging out with. And I think it's not for nothing. In the last generation, the Lubavitch Rebbe, Alam Shalom, had a few different campaigns. One of his campaigns was a bait Males farim, a home full of books. An idea behind it, and that's obviously not Pshat in the Mishnah. The Mishnah says your home should be a home of assembly for Chachamim. You should have Chachamim in your home. Why? All kinds of reasons. Very simply, when you get close to the Chachamim, your children see the Chachamim, you also have a greater chance in the world of being a Chacham. But he said something else, that there are places in the world, imagine, where you live now. How many opportunities do you have for being Chachamim that comes in your home? Dayanim, Rashi Shivan. How often does it happen? Very rarely. So what's the alternative to that? To bring all those chachamim to your house. You sit in your home, and who lives in your home? You pay rent, but you're also hosting Maran Rabbi Yosef Karo, the Ramah sitting with him. You have the Rambam in your home. You have Rabbi David Halavi in your home. You have Rav Shalush in your home. You have uh, all of these chachamim in your home. You have Rav Kapach in your home. 
You have all the Avuziels in your home. All of these people whose books you have are in your home also. There's something to be said about the value of that. There's a work of satire. I don't remember what it's called. And it's, it's a, based on a premise that America will one day uh, be covered in, uh, with a, hit by an asteroid, whatever will happen. And one day, in a thousand years from now, people will come to uncover America and they'll dig and they'll find and they'll see all these places and all these things. And they're going to notice that the God that all of the people in this country worshipped was a big black box that sat on a wall. Because every single home in the room, every chair, every furniture, every table, everything was facing towards these shrines. And they were so amazed at how devoutly religious the ancient Americans were. That they even in their homes, in their living rooms, sometimes even in their bedrooms, they dedicated shrines to the worship of their god, of the black box. And uh, I think that's something when you come to someone's home, is where is the whole home facing? What's, what is it looking at? Where do, what do you see on the walls? And that should tell you everything about a person. And that we should be able to live a life that even if we don't get to the nine hours of the Rambam, that the hours that we do do what we do, we still remember that we're learning Torah whenever we have an opportunity to learn Torah. Abiy Osha continues. בכלל היה מתנגד לחומות יתרות מפני שהיה חושש שמא מי שאינו יכול לשמור את כל החומות יעבור גם על דברי תורה. רבי יהושע was very concerned that by adding stringencies to halakha essentially you'd be causing more people to violate halakha because the more laws there are the more likely you are to violate a law. Uh, it's actually worth seeing the source inside. If you go to again Safaria and you click on Talmud and you find Shabbat, and you go to chapter 153b. Yeah, 153b of Masechet Shabbat. Talmud Bavli, you click on Shabbat, and you go to page 153b, I'm in subsection 5. There was a conversation in the Gemara now about all kinds of decrees that Chachamim made. In this case, it was a decree in accordance with Bet Shammai. And the Chachamim of the later generations were having a disagreement whether it was a good thing that our rabbis made more decrees or it was a bad thing that our rabbis made more decrees. Tanya, we learn. Rabbi Eliezer Omer. Rabbi Eliezer says, Bo bayom, on that day that they made that decree, Gadshu se'ah. They measured with a large overflowing se'ah. Meaning, it was a good thing that the rabbis made more decrees in the laws of Shabbat. It was a good thing. Rabbi Yoshua Omer, Rabbi Yoshua says, Bo bayom, that day, Machaku se'ah. They thought they were adding but really they were taking away. And they ended up measuring with a minimal se'ah. In section 6, Tana, it was taught, Mashal de Rabbi Eliezer. Let's find a parable that can compare to the teachings of Rabbi Eliezer. What is his stance similar to that adding to halakha is good? There's a famous uh, motivational speaker who mentions this Mashal. You take a cup, full of this, and you add that, and the next thing is the cup really full, and he shows you, no, if you add sand, the cup is really, there's more room, to, you know what I'm talking about? You've heard this, mashallah? 
Yes, from Masechet Shabbat. Look here. Lekupa melakishuin. There's some kind of container, maybe a basket, that is full of squash, vidiluin, and gourds. Adam noten chardal. A person now adds mustard seeds there. Vihim machzeket. And it also holds the mustard seeds. Understand? I have a cup, and the cup is full of walnuts. Yes? Can I put any more walnuts in there? My cup is full with walnuts. Can I put more walnuts? No, it's done. But what if I take sesame seeds? Can I pour sesame seeds here? They'll fall between, they'll still fill up. So when a cup is full of walnuts, is the cup really full? Of walnuts. But there's really more room. Now once I put all those sesame seeds, can I still take uh, water and pour it in there? Yes. But there's still more room. What Rabbi Eliezer is saying is the more you add, there's always room to add more. Rabbi Yoshua disagrees. Mashal Rabbi Yoshua. Let us bring a parable that explains the approach of Rabbi Yoshua. To what is this similar to? There's a big container that is full of honey. You put in the honey, it's a bowl, it's holding honey right now. You put pomegranates and walnuts. Why? I don't know. You wanted to store them in the bowl. You wanted to decorate the, the bowl with the honey. What happens when you take a bowl full of liquid and you add solids into it? It overflows. If you push people too hard, ultimately what's going to happen is they will overflow. It will, it will, they won't be able to hold exactly what it is that you're trying to get them to do. And here Rabbi Yoshua is teaching us something fascinating. Rabbi Yoshua's approach to halakha fits very much in line, by the way, with the approach of most of Chachmei Svarat, which is that a Judaism that is too rigid, that is too hard, you think you're catching angels. But really what you're causing people to do is give up hope that they'll ever be able to observe halakha at all. You've made halakha and a halachic lifestyle so unattainable that people don't say, oh wow, there's always room for me to do more. People don't feel that way. People feel, you ask me to do one more thing, I'm at my breaking point. I can't do anymore. And therefore Rabbi Yoshua says on that day that they added decrees was the day that they overflowed the bowl, meaning the day they caused more Jews to violate Shabbat instead of more Jews to keep Shabbat. This machloket, I would argue, still exists today. There's nothing new, nothing new under the sun. These are things that we've been discussing and, and arguing about for years and years and years. And I think that anyone with experience in the world and looks at the world will know that only one of these approaches is correct. And the approach of the danger of overflowing instead of feeling more is very real. We see it all the time. We see people that are pushed and they're pushed and they're pushed and they're pushed and suddenly they say it's the straw that broke the camel's back. It's really that. What are they adding? They're adding a gizera. What's that? Not a big deal. But that little thing that you think is not a big deal, it's the straw that broke the camel's back. He's already carrying trees, carrying rocks, carrying suitcases, I don't know what he's carrying. And then now you put a little twig on top and you broke the camel. Why? Wasn't this, you put too much on him. How much can you expect already from the camel to do? This style of Rabbi Yoshua, I hope, is painting him for you in a different light than when we see him as the antagonist in the story of Rabbi Eliezer. In his own, he is leading Am Yisrael on a path of moderation. Let's continue. Let's look at the next Gemara. Keep your safari open. Go back to the Talmud. Click on Bava Batra. So it should be a little bit farther down the page. So click Safari, Talmud. Look for Bava Batra. 
There are three Bavas. Make sure you find the right one. This actually might be relevant to us. Hopefully not this year anymore, but in the past. Let's look at section 10. Tenura Banan. No, so we're on page 60b. I tell you that? Sorry. We're in Talmud Babli, Baba Batra, page 60b. 60, 60b. In subsection 10. Sixty B. Yeah. Six zero B. Talmud Bavli, Bavabatra, sixty B. Someone has to make an app that while I'm looking at my safari, it sends you all the links while I'm Tanura Banan, a rabbi taught us. Lo Yasud Adam Beto Besid. A person should not plaster their home with plaster. Vim irev and if you mixed into it sand or straw, mutar it's permissible. Rabbi Yehuda Omer irav bochol harizet achsid v'asur teven mutar. He makes a differentiation between different types of materials you plaster your wall with. This all relates to a famous halacha that since the Beit Hamikdash has been destroyed, it is forbidden for a person to fully plaster their home, meaning to fully paint their home. It has to, right. That little corner that is left unpainted, unplastered, whatever it might be. Now, if you're renting a home, or you don't have to go necessarily, most people, you don't have to go and destroy a part of the wall. But when you're coming to redo it, it's really important. Now, when it says where you put it, different chachamim understand either opposite the door, so you see it when you come in, or on top of the door. Either way, there's a discussion among the I didn't come to talk about this halacha. Look in section 11. Tanur Rabbanan, a rabbi's taught. Kshicharav habayit bashniya. When the Bede Mikdash was destroyed the second time, Rabu Perushin Bisrael, the as- pietist, the ascetics, ascetics, that's a word? Perushin are like us, but they're not really like us. And they're Pharisees, but they're extreme Pharisees. They're parshu, they were abstaining from things in the world. They were, yeah, ascetics, that's a word. Shalom Echol Basar, and they said that since the Bede Mikdash is destroyed, we will no longer eat meat. Vishalom Yishtot Yain, we will no longer drink wine. What does this remind you of? Okay, close, fine, very good. But where, where, something that you practice today? Very good. The three weeks, the nine days, not to eat meat, not to drink wine. The origins come from this sugya here. So, from when the Beit Hamikdash was destroyed, many, many ascetics started appearing in the Jewish people that wanted to mourn the destruction of the Beit Hamikdash in all kinds of ways—not to eat meat, not to drink wine. Nitzpalehen Rabbi Yoshua. Rabbi Yoshua joined them. Oh, that's how we translate Mitzpah, but okay. He means he comes into their conversation. Amar lehem banai, tells them, my children, Why don't you eat meat and drink wine? What's the reason? Amulo, but when he says banai, he calls them my children. Where does he stand in terms of his relationship to them? Yeah, so he's in a position where he's leading them. I mean, they're... they're he can approach this conversation and, and give them his two cents. Why are you not eating meat and drinking wine? Amrulo, they tell him, Could we possibly eat meat, which used to be offered in the Bet HaMikdash, and now we're no longer allowed to offer meat? How could we bring ourselves to eat meat? 
We're going to drink wine. The wine they used to offer on the Mizbeach, on the altar, now, now that wine is no longer offered to HaKadosh Baruch so he can't have wine, but we're going to have wine. It can't be. Amar Lehem, he tells them, Im can, according to your logic. Lechem, lo nochal, we cannot eat bread. Shekva batalum menachot, because the meal offerings have been already, there's no more offering of bread in the Mikdash. Ifshar beperot, maybe you can eat fruits, fine, we won't eat bread, we'll survive on fruits. Perot lo nochal, we won't eat fruits anymore. Shekva batru bikurim, because now we no longer offer our fruits in the bed of Mikdash, when we have our first fruits. Ifshar beperot acherim, maybe we'll eat uh, other types. We won't drink water. Maybe we'll stop drinking water. We'll stop eating fruits. We'll stop eating bread. Why not water? Because they're no longer offering water in the Beit Dash. So what does it mean? There's nothing in the world we can eat anymore. We should all die of starvation. Shatku. They were silent. Meaning, they were, they were silenced by his answer. Amar lehen banai. He tells them, my sons, Bo, come. Vomar lachem. And I will teach you. It's impossible not to mourn at all. Because there's already been a decree. There is what to mourn. You can't pretend the Bede Mikdash is not destroyed. And to mourn too much is also impossible. This is a very important rabbinic rule and it connects directly to what Rabbi Yoshua taught us just a few minutes ago in the laws of Shabbat. It is forbidden to place a decree on the public which the public will be unable to uphold. By the way, in the last few years, we've been discussing policies and public policies and mandates and rules. One word of advice that people could take from our Chachamim, there are certain things that you can legislate, certain things you can police, and other things that you cannot police. And it's very wise to know what you actually have power over and what you don't. In the moment in which you are making rules that people inevitably won't follow, you're causing all the rest of the rules to become a mockery also. This is very important. When you know, you have to know, it's not, it's not a matter of right or wrong. It's a matter of you have to know that ultimately the law only works if people follow it. And if people feel that, hey, I'm trampling this law, then all the rest of the laws go out the window too. It's why there's a famous teshuvah of the Rivash. Rivash was a famous Chachamim. And he wrote that if a Chacham comes to a city, and this is a minhag that they've been doing for a very long time. But that minhag, it's not a good minhag anymore. What do you mean is that a good minhag? It has some kind of side effect to that minhag that violates even a minor rabbinic law. It says the job of the chacham to get rid of that law. He must. That's his choice. We're going to discuss this in the Peleuets in a week or two from now. The Rivash says, but there's only one time a chacham should not get rid of a minhag. If he fears that by getting rid of a minhag, even a bad minhag, that might cause people to stop following halakha entirely. If the rabbi can get rid of halachot, then we're also getting rid of halachot. If that's the way they're going to look at it, it's better he should let them do whatever minhagim they're doing wrong, because this community are not a reasonable group of people to which he can share halakha with. It's more dangerous for him to teach them the right halakha than to teach them, uh, than, than to just let them do the small mistake they're doing. Is that a difficult thing to accept? Absolutely. Is it true? I think we've all experienced it in our life. 
inside of Kilat Shachamayim, there's certain things we could talk about and share and say that we know that if we were to present them to the rest of the world, those people would not have any ability to digest information that is being shared with them. They've never been allowed to look at a halakha differently than has been looked at before. So how do you expect they're going to do anything aside from say, ah, all the halakha don't matter. Whenever I teach my Pesach class, I always make a point of saying this class for Pesach only applies to people who learned with me the rest of the year. I know that people don't listen. But unless you understand the framework with which these halakhot seemingly have changed, they've not changed, but seemingly they've changed from the way you were taught the laws of Pesach, I'm very afraid that you might walk away from this class thinking, ah, everything is okay for Pesach. That's not true. Why did I start teaching laws of Pesach, by the way? When I first came to America, the one thing they told me, never speak about Kashrut. If you want to lose your reputation in the rabbinic community, don't speak about Kashrut and don't. What else? I got two words of advice from a big Tamil Chacham in Yerushalayim. Conversion. Not Kashrut and not Giyu. Stay very far away from those two things and everybody will love you. By the way, it's amazing. You look at the community. People can steal. and They get out. They don't talk about Kashrut and they don't deal with Giyu. It's, it's the truth. It's the reality. Why did I start speaking about Kashrut? I came here to America and I watched many, 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 many Sephardic communities of people who knew that the Pesach books that they were being given they don't take into consideration kitinyo, they, don't, they, they say you can't have rice, you can't have corn, you can't have beans, all these things. So what do they do? They say, ah, we don't follow these rules at all. Then I went to people's houses on Pesach. People who are otherwise observant of halakha. And they're eating Rice Krispies, cereal, on Pesach. Well, it's just rice, right? It's puffed rice, of course, that has barley malt in it. It's chametz. It's not kitinyo, it's chametz. But what happened? The rabbis never told them which rice they can have and which rice they can have and which ones they, they... They never gave them any guidelines. So what do they do? They know. One thing we know for sure is those rabbis are all Ashkenazim. They're lying to us. So we're going to do our own thing. That doing our own thing is, is terrible. And so I said, someone has to do something about it. So what did I do? I started writing a little pamphlet to give to the people of Makila. That pamphlet turned into a book. And that book then became Yishalom. But it wasn't intentional. It intended only to tell Savaradim, listen, there are a lot of things you're allowed to do, but not everything you're allowed to do. Just because you think you can, not everything that you see is what it is. And when I saw the people eating chametz on Pesach, thinking that they were Savaradim, weak in the yod, that's really when I got concerned. Sometimes when you make things more difficult, it doesn't actually help anybody. It only makes everybody else fall off the bandwagon. Let's keep going. If you look on page 458, Let's look at just a couple more teachings of Rabbi Yosha and we're going to call it a night. This is one of my favorite teachings in the world. So if you open up, again, Savaria, click on Mishnah, or I'm going to try to say, make sure I say all the subcategories here. Go to chapter 3. Sota. Chapter 3. <laughs> chapter 3. <laughs> okay, Mishnah, Sota, number 3. Yeah. Mishnah 4. It's in, you're in the Mishnah? Go to the Mishnah. Click Sota.
section four. Do me a favor, skip the whole first part. I won't be able to teach this to you tonight. I'm looking at the end of it. It's a teaching of Rabbi Yoshua. Hu Omer. He used to say, Rabbi Yoshua. Chasid Shoteh. What is a Chasid Shoteh? A foolish, crazy, stupid, pious man. V'rasha Arum. Rasha Arum is a trickster of a wicked person. V'isha Perusha. And an abstinent woman. Umakot Perushin. And those Pharisees which wound themselves. Why are they wounding themselves? Okay, it could be like that. They're so afraid of looking at women that they keep walking into walls and doors and hurting themselves. So this is a new problem? It's not a new problem. Harei'elu, these people... Are, here it says these people are destroyers of the world let me double check in my Mishnah I recall there being a vet over there yeah the Rambam writes that's great I'm glad I didn't forget that these people are the destroyers of the world so if they're a group of people that destroy the world these are them now the Gemara might explain what is a Chasid Shoteh, a righteous fool who destroys the world. I mean, they're so, they're so righteous, but they're also so foolish they destroy the world. There are those who explain it's a certain kind of man who sees a woman drowning in the river. He doesn't want to save her life because he can't touch her. He can't touch her. He's one of those, he lets her drown. He's one of the people who destroy the world. Literally, his actions, his religiosity destroys the world. Learning Mishnah, it is crucial to learn it with the commentary of the Rambam. Oh, Hashem. The Rambam didn't leave us commentaries on everything. But on the Mishnah, he left us commentaries. Now, the, Ram, the commentary that you have here, if you click commentary and go to Rambam, you're going to go to the standard translation of the Rambam. I don't wish to say anything about this translation, aside from not all who translated the Rambam did a good job at translating the Rambam. So I want to read to you from Harav Kapach's edition, which is not found in Sepharia. This is his translation of the Rambam. Chasichote says the Rambam. I brought this in my book in the second chapter of Yehishalom. The Rambam says, Amru Talmud. The rabbis of the Talmud explain, What is a Chasichote, a righteous fool who destroys the world? It is a person who is so particular about halakha in an exaggerated way. It's too much. Ad shenimas adam, until he becomes abhorrent, repulsive in the eyes of other people. It's somebody who's so religious that he puts off other people from Torah, from mitzvot, from Judaism. They just see, oh, that guy's it's crazy. But he is being very particular about halacha, but he's crazy. masim, and he's the epitome of this man is one who does things sheno that he's not obligated to do. And that's exactly what Rabbi Yushua means when he says he's a righteous fool, meaning his righteousness is foolish. The things that he does, he doesn't have to do. He does all kinds of chumot, but Kadosh Baruch didn't know about those chumot. Moshe Rabbeinu didn't know about them. The Gemara didn't know. The Rambam Shulchan Aruch didn't know. So how does he know? No chumot. 
And the rabbis tell us, Amasechet Shabbat and Yerushalmi, call me shehu patur midavar veosehu nikra hediot. Anyone who is exempt from something and still chooses to do it is called a hediot. An ignoramus. Meaning, says the Rambam, that the definition of a chasid shoteh is not the guy who's so crazy that he won't save a woman from the river. Hopefully, even the crazy religious people of today will save a woman from a river. I don't know if that's true, but hopefully they will. Here, what he's saying is that people whose whole religiosity is so off-putting that they destroy the world in their religiosity. I think we are full of a generation like that. I mean, this is something that is as real as it ever has been. Like you said on Shabbat, you don't really mock the of the Rambam. Yeah, that's right. But it's the other direction of here. You should be if you want to be machmir somewhere. I could show you. I said, but you want some chumot? I'll show you good chumot. You want? I'll show you. But those are not good chumot. The ones you're doing are. Uh, a waste of time and energy, and they hurt other people. Yeah, this is it. This is the foolish piety. Now, he also mentions the makat perushim. He says those are people who pretend to be chachamim. They do all kinds of things that are seemingly righteous, but if you dig underneath, you'll see that they're as rotten as any other rotten thing in the world, and they know how to keep up the external appearances and behaviors of very righteous people. Did It does. But... Sometimes you live a life for so long you don't know anymore. People, not you. Uh, people are, are like caught up in a, in a, and it helps when you're part of a community. That community helps you, help you live your life. And you know who knows the best? Children. Children are the best lie detectors in the world. They know, you know, they say about that guy in the Berakneset, he tells his kid, shh, don't talk in the Berakneset. Moshe, what were you saying again? You know, there's a, a certain, the father who shuts you up in the Berakneset, but he himself talks. Why is he shutting you up? He's a hypocrite. Kids know who when their parents are being hypocrites. They know when their parents are liars. They know. The Shla Kadosh writes that there was a Sephardic Chacham in Yerushalayim who all his children came out to be Tzadikim. And he asked the children, how did you all become Tzadikim? He said, our father, whenever something bad would happen in the house, we'd break something, we'd hurt someone, whatever it was, he would say, he lined us all up against the wall. And he would say, whoever is going to tell me the truth will not get in trouble. But the one who lies to me, I will find out if you lie to me. You don't want to know what's going to happen to him. So we were taught from a very young age that it's worth it to tell the truth. And that made us into Tzadikim. Harav Peretz quotes in the back of his book. Something that, by the way, I'm not, I hope my children will be Tzadikim like this man. I've tried with my children. My home, the same rule. What's the problem though? The problem is the rest of the world doesn't function with that rule. So in my home, if my child tells me, Abba, I broke something, listen, I get upset, but not at him. He told me the truth. He could have chosen to lie. I don't, there's no consequence to lying, uh, to telling the truth. You tell the truth, you tell the truth, walk away. If you have to say sorry to somebody, your brother or sister, you have to say sorry. But in my home, when a person tells me the truth, they get off the hook. Sometimes people think I'm crazy for it. I want them to know there's a value to telling the truth. The problem is when they go to the world, they go to school. They say, who did it? You say that you did it. The first thing that happens to you is they throw you to the principal's office. You're in your real life. You're, Who did it? You get in trouble. So it's a hard thing to tell them that in our home we try to be anshayimit, but outside in the street, what does it say? With uh, much trickery, you must win a war. That's the Mossad slogan. It's a pasuk from Tanakh, but that's their slogan. Let's look at another teaching of Yoshua. Almost our last one. It says of Yoshua. It's a good story. Let's do a story. I will end with that. If you go to Masechet Derech Eretz, who here knows what is Masechet Derech Eretz? 
That's one of the minor masechtot. So if you if you open up Talmud and you look at all the way at the end of the list, there's minor tractates. You see that? Sefaria, Talmud, minor tractates. It says tractate derech eretz raba. That's one word. There's two. There's raba and zuta. We're in the first one here. Right underneath avod Rabbi Nathan. Yeah, you see that? And I'm in the end of chapter 5. There's so many beautiful stories in Masechah Dei One day you and I will sit together and study Masechah Dei If you want to read something at home, read chapter 2. Uh, not chapter 2, uh, section 2 of chapter 5. But I'm now reading to you chapter 5, section 3. So I'm in chapter 5, subsection 3. On the right side, there should be numbers. Or the left side, depending how you have your... Le'olam. You see where I am at? Le'olam yu kol b'nei adam chashuvim lefanecha kilistim veheve mechabdan kerabban gamliyen. Always let all people that you meet be considered in your eyes as if they are robbers. But treat them, show them outwardly respect. As if they are Rabban Gamliel. In Hebrew, we say this in a short way: Kabdehu v'Chashdehu. Respect him, but suspect him. Every person in the world, you should assume that they're a criminal, but treat them like they're the prince of the Jewish people. I mean, don't allow your thoughts that they might be a criminal to interfere in the way you treat them, but make sure that around them you 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 defend yourself responsibly. Meaning, because even though that you might treat them well, they might actually be a criminal. And they're going to tell you a story now that happened with Rabbi Yoshua. Umaseb Rabbi Yoshua. It's one of my favorite stories in the whole Talmud. The story about Rabbi Yoshua. Shishkim Adam. That a certain person came to him early in the morning. V'natan lo achila And he gave him to eat and drink. V'elahu lagag dishkav. From my understanding, what happened in Texas started the same way. The Beda Knesset allowed for this man to enter in a good way. They were doing good. They were doing chesed to him, and he abused that chesed. He gave him to eat and drink. And he took him up to his roof. What do you mean to his roof? Very good. So, like, you know, in New York, they have these apartments. They're smaller than this Beda Knesset. They pay $10,000 a month, and they have uh, lofts over there that people sleep in them. My brother used to live in one of those things. I always joke that when him and his wife would have a child, all they need is to get one of those uh, wall shelves from Home Depot, drill it on the wall, they could put a kid. That's also another loft. Every kid, they could add a shelf to the wall. Uh, so this is the same thing. You have, imagine like in a barn, you have a, a loft up there that everyone sleeps in. So he sends them up to the loft to go sleep. And how do you get up to the loft? There's a ladder. So he took the ladder away. So he sent them up and he took away the ladder. What did that guy do? Amad so really this is not this is happening at night now, the story. Not really in the morning, why it says that's a good question. And the man stands up in the middle of the night. He started gathering all of the valuables up there and wrapped them in his talit, his clothing, and his bag, and his uh, blanket. Like in the movies, the little guy who walks around with the he steals everything in his blanket. The same thing happening over here. He wraps everything up in his blanket. And now when he was trying to climb down the ladder, he puts his foot down, he falls from the loft, 
ונשברה מפרקתו. And he broke his neck. So he thought there was a ladder. It was dark. There were no night lights. He didn't have a phone with a flashlight. He stepped down where the ladder was supposed to be, holding all these things, and he slipped, he fell, there was no ladder, and he broke his neck. The Shacharit, the next morning, Hishkim Rabbi Yoshua. Rabbi Yoshua woke up. Uva, and he came, Matzaok Shunofed. He sees him there, lying on the floor, with the broken neck. Amarlo, he tells him, Reka, you empty one. Maybe it means something else, but that's all translated. Do all people in the world act the way you do? They come to someone's house, they use them, they steal other things, they try to run away. Rabbi, you didn't tell me you took the ladder away. Who's complaining at who now? You tried robbing me, you broke your neck because you tried to run, and now you're complaining at me that I took away the ladder. Amar lo, reka, you empty one. Did you not know that already from yesterday we were suspecting you? From here, Rabbi Yoshua says, You should always treat people like robbers, but respect them, meaning feed them, drink them, give them a place to sleep like Rabban Gamliel, but always assume that they're going to do the worst to you like any other robber. I once heard him tell a story that he had a certain guest come to his house for Shabbat and he slept by his home and he kept looking at Chamor Chaliyahu's books and his library and said, oh Rabbi, tell me about this book tell me about that book and there was a certain book that caught his eye it was a very old book Chamor Chaliyahu was very valuable and he kept asking, Rabbi, where'd you get that book? what's inside of it? how much do you think it's worth? Chamor Chaliyahu got suspicious that this guy is going to try to steal his book so what did he do? He took the paper cover off of that book and he put it on one of his children's books. And he put it back in the library and he took that book with him to his bedroom. And uh, once Shabbat, he saw that his book was stolen. The guy stole the children's book with a nice fancy wrapper. Uh, you have to treat him like he's uh, esteemed. You have to make sure you keep your eyes on people and things and places. When people come to my home. I'm not afraid to tell people. In every one of my children's bedrooms, there are video cameras. I don't put it there because of them. I'm not worried about them. I'm worried about you. You should know you're being watched everywhere. There's no camera in the bathroom. Don't worry. Everywhere else, you're on camera. Smile. Why? I need a person to know. The world that we live in is a crazy world. And people should know that everything, we are watching you. Always we are watching. You can come. You want to make sure not to let your guard down. In my opinion, there are many people, especially those involved in the Jewish communities, who in their desire to be doing good for everybody in the world, end up harming themselves and their families by allowing all the uncouth people of the world to enter their lives. And it's not correct. It's not okay. You don't have an obligation to bring in criminals and problematic people. You don't have that job. There's one situation here. Not here in Maikiva. But here in San Diego, that uh, a certain person was known to have molested children. And the rabbi didn't want to throw them out of the Vedic Knesset. Why? His logic... Even criminals did a place to pray. Yeah, there's a place for criminals to pray. In the prison, there's a Berakaneset. They're welcome to go pray there. If you want to send them down the street to whatever other place you don't like, fine. But in your Berakaneset, you know this person hurt children. You don't care. Everybody, this misplaced compassion on a person ultimately hurts other people. And this is something that we have to, every person that walks to jail, you don't know who they are, 
yeah, come, eat, come for a Shabbat, but I need to make sure I know who you are. And until I know who you are, I'm going to treat you nicely. But inside, I'm not going to trust you the way I would. And with that, the encyclopedia has one more sentence for us, no longer Savari. I'll just summarize what it says here. Masechet Sanhedrin is a machloket. Rabbi Yeshua says, He says there, that Am Yisrael, if they, don't do, if they do Teshuvah, they'll be redeemed. And if they don't do Teshuvah, they will not be redeemed. Says Rabbi Yeshua, what do you mean? The Jewish people will not be redeemed. Rather, what does it mean? If the Jewish people are not doing Teshuvah on their own, HaKadosh Baruch Hu will send them a king, like Haman, who will cause them to do Teshuvah, and then he'll redeem them. So, the choice of not doing Teshuvah is a choice. You can bring about Mashiach if everybody is going to do Averot. But then expect that we will also have a king, like Haman, who will come and keep us in line. Rabbi Yoshua Nishar Ha'am, Rabbi Yoshua has been preserved in the eyes of the people, as the epitome of the, the sharp scholar. Who knows how to stand up and defend our faith from all of those who denigrate it. In the generation of destruction, in the most difficult days of crisis that were in the Jewish people, and he presided over as the rabbi. Rabbi Yoshua is the one who stands up and he takes the mantle of leadership and sets precedence for how we are going to lead the Jewish people to survive this long exile. And Rabbi Yoshua used his Torah and his wisdom as a weapon perhaps a different weapon than other weapons that we've used in our history, but as a weapon to ensure Jewish survival in what was going to become one of the longest and most bitter exiles. I think when you look at a personality like Rabbi Yoshua, and you look at him where he tells us last time, that you have to be wise and not fight the Romans, because right now the fact is that we're in front of a lion. If the lion chooses not to eat us, then we should be lucky to be alive. There are times where we do fight. People despise our faith. They denigrate our faith. We have answers. There are chamim who know the answer. There are times where being stringent and throwing Rabbi out to save the Jewish people is what's called for. And there are times to be lenient and to make halachot that are moderate and to fight against chumot. There are times for everything. And a true chacham is somebody, Ezu chacham who is wise? He who sees the future. Who knows exactly what move needs to be made now in order to save the future. The person has ever played the game of chess. When my boys were very young, it was the beginning of COVID, I think. Uh, we were home a lot, and I don't know what to do with them. How much can you learn? How much can you read? So I taught them how to play chess. If they still remember, I don't know. But I taught them how to play chess. And the purpose of this game, I don't think you should waste too much of your time playing chess. A little bit, fine. I still remember. <laughs> Thank you, Achanan. I'm glad you still remember. What I taught them is this game, it's not about the move you're about to make right now. It's about the move you're going to make 10 moves from now. To know that the piece you move now, it's, it's important, but not as important as that other piece you're trying to move and you're looking at the whole board and where is he going and where is that going. Where It's to know how to think in the future. In order to be a chacham, at the very least a tamich chachamim, is to look and say, I know which move needs to be made now to make sure that in 10 generations, in 100 years, and wherever it's going to be, that Jewish people will still be following halakha. And sometimes it looks like I'm taking a move backwards. Sometimes it looks like I'm giving up on a piece. Sometimes it looks like I'm playing too hard over there when I should be playing. But that's what a chacham does. A chacham knows which part of the game you play in order to achieve the desired result. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu bless us with the wisdom of Rabbi Yoshua ben Chanina. B'zad Hashem.